Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Staff Sergeant Stevan Booker. Booker was a tank commander serving with Alpha Company, part of the 1st Battalion, 64th Armored Regiment, 164 Armor. That's part of the 3rd Infantry Division, and the time period we're going to talk about is in April of 2003 during the initial invasion of Iraq. Now, to back up a little bit and talk about the Iraq War, the 2003 Iraq War, you know, I think we are far enough away now to be able to have some more open discussions about it, potentially. That gets better with time. We can be a little more objective the further we get from conflicts. But that's also not the purpose of this show. I'm not going to spend a lot of time diving into the um, should we or should we not have at a political and at a governmental level. Um, More focus here within War Stories is the conversation around the individual soldier actions once they are asked to do something that in many cases, like we're going to see here in the invasion of Iraq, they didn't make that decision. They had to work with the cards they were dealt. Now, the war in Iraq, as it was presented, was a couple main purposes. Those main purposes that were presented, and now this is where it starts to get foggy because you you do still today, 17 years later, see different explanations, different reasonings. It's not clear cut like we saw in the second world war. It's not, you know, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. We're going to war against Japan. Bam. And we're off and running. It's not that clear. So there ends up being a lot of reasoning, a lot of kind of parsing words and shifting explanations. Nonetheless, going to war in Iraq had relative, I want to say in the 60 percentile um, approval by the American people from the information that they had. And we, they, we had, And the explanation was to disarm Iraq of weapons of mass destruction, to end Saddam Hussein's support for terrorism, and to free the Iraqi people. Those are all um, tangible, I would say, is is, is a way to put it. But now we know, looking back, there really weren't weapons of mass destruction, certainly not at the scale that um, was presented. We we were successful. The coalition was successful in ending – Saddam Hussein's support for anything because we captured and, and, and supported his going on trial by the Iraqi people. And if you, if, you know, this is where you start to go down rabbit holes that I want to avoid, but Saddam was not a good person. Does that mean that the United States toppling that government was the better option? I don't know, but Saddam not being in power has some positive sides, certainly. And then the the last piece there to free the Iraqi people is, in retrospect, a challenging one to stand by, just given the amount of suffering and the amount of pain that has come to the people of Iraq over the last 17 years. Um, You know, armchair quarterback, we're looking back to, to make decisions when we, I am looking back um, judging decisions that I wasn't a part of with information I didn't have with pressure, with, with none of the pressure that our leaders faced at that time. But nonetheless, I do think it's fair to say that this will be a controversial conflict for a while. 
And I think the further we get away from it, the less we'll be able to kind of fit in why certain things were good or bad. I think we're going to get to a point quickly, actually, and then we're going to get back on track here. I I think we're going to get to a point quickly where the repercussions from the 2003 invasion are going to overshadow memories of Saddam and his regime leading up to that. So in in 50 years, the, the vision of Iraq and what people remember of Iraq is going to be the destruction that came about after 2003 or during the sectarian violence in 2007 or after ISIS came in in 2014 time frame. Nonetheless, soldiers like Stavon Booker, Staff Sergeant Stavon Booker, were asked to cross this berm and kick off the ground invasion of Iraq after terms had not been met um, to disarm and leave the country any number of, of terms that, that President Bush and Prime Minister Tony Blair the, from the United Kingdom sent Saddam. They weren't met. And on 19 March, the aerial bombardment really kicked off. Some attempts to, we kind of forget at this point, some attempts to kill Saddam uh, right out the gate in that initial bombardment. It was a pretty substantial um, attack by air. And in short order, on the 20th then, we've had forces now staging in the Middle East in preparation for this, right? You don't just snap your fingers and say, we're going to war, and then the next day you do. There's a lot of preparation and lead up to get to that point. So we had forces ready. And I want to say that some of these units were in uh, in the theater for for you know close to six months even, like three, four months at a time getting ready just in case this thing happens. And on March 20th, um, 2003, it happens. And they they cross the berm, is, is the way it's referred to. They cross the berm into Iraq and kick off the ground invasion designed to topple Saddam's government. Again, with these, these ideas of finding and destroying weapons of mass destruction, which is, you can go down, you, there's, a, there's a strong debate to be had there. If a country, if you topple a country because they have, weapons that they're not supposed to have, what does that do to the next country? Does that make them say, I better hurry up and get those weapons before I get toppled? Or does it make them say, I don't want to even, you know, run the risk of being of somebody thinking that we have those, but it's, it's not, again, another item in the Iraq war that's not super clear cut. And I think there's fair arguments on all sides. Nonetheless, they crossed the berm, kicking off the invasion of Iraq. And for a period of time there, we'll say the first 10 days, it's, well, first probably two weeks, there's pretty serious fighting all around. There's going to be forces in the first two-week window from March through the first few days of April. There's going to be substantial fighting in the south of the country. That's where the, the majority of U.S. and coalition forces come from, pushing in from Kuwait. They're going to be pushing south to north towards Baghdad. So... Of course, with that being the major thrust of the attack, that's where the bulk of the resistance is met. We are going to have, there'll be special operations and conventional forces fighting in the western part of the country. You're going to see um, units, you know, airdropped into the north. You're going to see some special operations units kind of operating in a lot of different places across Iraq. But the bulk, the main invasion, if you have to narrow it down to one, one arrow on a map, that arrow goes south to north towards Baghdad. And there's a fair amount of resistance as we're moving, moving north, but eventually everybody is headed with the goal of, remember, we're toppling a government at this point is the idea. That government's you know, focus and really their major defensive network is thought, at least, to be in and around Baghdad. That's where the leadership is. That's where, at this point in the first few days of the war, you're starting to see some units, some Iraqi units, be pulled back in and around Baghdad 
kind of as a last stand, as opposed to being pushed out to go fight the coalition somewhere away, which isn't crazy. This is something you've seen throughout history. So after a few weeks of fighting, American forces are relatively close to Baghdad, 20, 30, 40 miles, um, not real far away. And there's the thought at this point that the what we might pursue as a strategy is the idea of kind of circling Baghdad. It wouldn't have been real hard at this point. We've got pretty, pretty substantial armored firepower on the outskirts-ish of Baghdad. And if we can create this ring around the city, we might be able to just slowly move in. Now, throughout this conflict, there's always the thought, I mean, perpetually the thought that there's a big strong, well-supplied enemy force waiting or around the corner, or it's going to be that thing or this thing. And, and, and now we can look back and say that there were a lot of Iraqi forces that disintegrated, that didn't stand and fight like we thought they might. Um, Republican Guard units, kind of some of their more elite units, some fought hard, others not as much. Some were not anywhere near as well-equipped and maintained as we thought, which is good, right? If you're going to have to make that judgment and then go into battle, you'd rather see it that way than say, I'm sure they're going to disintegrate and, and, and run away um, to fight another day. And then they don't. So we're constantly waiting for this, you know, big counterpunch, big, big counterpunch from the Iraqi forces. And there's a thought that that's going to happen in and around Baghdad. In fact, the thought is that a lot of these Iraqi armored units, armored personnel carriers, tanks, and, and some of their more elite units are retreating to Baghdad to put up kind of a, a last stand fight. Now, generally speaking, the American strategy at this point, the coalition strategy is let them go. Let them go. And when they're consolidated in and around Baghdad, they will be easier targets for air power. As we close this, um, you know, close this, this encirclement closer and closer and closer into whatever, you know, eventually it'll be one neighborhood in Baghdad that's just, it's the last holdouts. It's kind of what we saw with the Islamic State when we were driving them, when we, the International Coalition was driving them out of Iraq and Syria and, and bam, they're in this just small little pocket and it makes it real easy to strike and kind of remove that threat once and for all. That's kind of the idea. But as we get closer and closer to Baghdad, these major armored threats aren't materializing. And it gives... U.S. commanders, the thought of, hey, is there much left? Maybe, maybe that giant armored counterattack that that could be, you know, worst case scenario, won't ever materialize because it can't materialize. So there's this thought put in in early April to kick off something, to kick uh, an armored raid. <laughs> kind of stumbled there. It would come to be known as the Thunder Run. And the unit that gets tasked with doing this thing, this thunder run, is going to be 164 Armor, 1st Battalion, 64th Armored Regiment. And, or it's a task force. So it's a series of tanks, armored personnel carriers, infantry. Um, but it's a combat unit. And what they're going to do, they're about 20 miles or so south of the Baghdad airport, at that point, the Saddam airport. And the idea is, instead of this kind of slow, concerted push north, Let's go right up some of the main roads. Let's see what they've got left in terms of fighting power. And if we, we you know, one big thrust through their lines might see the resistance kind of 
collapse away. If nothing else, we're going to be able to see what's still out there that we have to deal with. Now, the the airport had been taken just a couple days prior. I want to say it was April 2nd and the 3rd. There was pretty serious fighting around the airport. It ended up being one of the more defended areas in the entire conflict or in the entire invasion. And American forces, again, mostly 3rd Infantry Division soldiers. The 3rd ID is going to play a major, a leading role in the Iraq invasion. So some 3rd ID units are fighting for the airport and and generally have it secured prior to this thunder run. So it's it's far from a safe space, but I believe by the 5th, by April 5th, when the thunder run kicks off, it's at least a, there's at least an American perimeter around the, around the airport. So on April 5th, this thunder run kicks off. It's going to be 17-ish miles north, and then they're going to turn west into the Baghdad airport. Again, we're going to test what's remaining of the Iraqi defenses. One of the tanks in that column is led, commanded by Staff Sergeant Stevon Booker. Booker, and I believe his call sign is, is Red 3. I believe it's Red 3. Nonetheless, he's a tank commander, TC. A tank, U.S. Army tank, Abrams tank, is going to have four people in the vehicle. You'll have a driver, drives. You're going to have a gunner that operates the main gun as their primary role. You're going to have a loader that is going to... Um, load ammunition into the main cannon, the main gun. And you're going to have a, a tank commander, truck commander, um, TC, usually the, almost always the, the senior ranking person in the vehicle. And by position, they outrank everybody as in they are directing the overall tank. But it's just a reminder that a tank is not like a car that you just drive around. It's a weapon system. And that driver has to drive, even if the gunner is moving the turret left and right. And it's the job of the TC to coordinate everything. This is a machine, and they're leading three people, the TC is, throughout this, this throughout any engagement. Even just driving down the road when there's no enemy fire, being a TC, being a tank commander can be exhausting. There's a lot being asked of that person to recognize their equipment, to know their tank, and understand the limitations and the capabilities. To hear When they hear a certain noise, know, oh, we got to pull over and get that fixed, or that's just what this tank does. To understand your driver's capabilities, to be able to communicate with your headset, with the other people in your crew while listening to at least one other radio network. So think about that. Put yourself in your vehicle and you're in your, in your car driving around with your family and you've got a headset on because it's so loud in the tank. You couldn't, it's very hard to hear um, people that are even very close to you, um, let alone a couple feet apart or behind a little bit of a door, maybe like the driver. So there's a headset, kind of an intercom system. So imagine having an intercom system in your car with your family but then you've also got phone calls going out to friends or, or, or the other car next door to you or next to you. And you have multiple conversations going on at once. And it's not quiet at all times. It is constant talking. Everybody in the tank is constantly chattering, giving information, this, that, the other. And the entire time you're hearing updates from outside of the tank from other units. This is the tank commander's job. It's stressful. It doesn't stop. And again, even when there's not enemy firing at you, there's a lot to keep track of. That's Booker's job. He's known across the unit as, as being a solid performer. He's known as being one of the people that a lot of the junior soldiers would look to for training. Takes it upon himself time and again to go out and train the soldiers every chance he gets to make sure they are they are ready and able to uh, ready and able to do things like the Thunder Run on April fifth, two thousand and three. Now, when you think of a tank, you think that it's just 
it's it's a beast. It can't be destroyed, can't be beaten, especially American tanks, the Abrams, right? They can charge through anything. But the problem that you run into with tanks, one of the problems, it's no different than when we really first started started seeing tanks in major warfare. I'm not going to include the First World War because we were still working through a lot of kinks. But in the Second World War, one of the problems was if you can remove everything else from the battlefield and just have tanks versus tanks, cool, great. That's one type of battle. And and the American tanks going up against the the older you know, T-72 tanks the Iraqi army is using, it's no match. The U.S. Army is going to be able to decimate them. And, and you know, conventional fight, no problem. But you never get to operate in this perfect environment for that type of warfare. And the problem throughout, not problem, but one of the challenges, I'll say, for armored warfare, for tank warfare throughout history is those pesky dismounted soldiers can actually cause a lot of damage. So you would think that one soldier couldn't do much to a tank. And generally speaking, you're right. What is one soldier going to do to to destroy an entire tank? And that's hard. You know, maybe it's a, a, a if they have a anti-tank weapon system, whether it's a bazooka or an RPG, and, and, and that weapon system is able to knock out the whole tank, got it. We see some of those in Iraq. That's a problem. But the bigger issue isn't that one soldier, like we would see in World War II, where a Japanese soldier would throw himself under an American tank to blow it up. They don't have to do that. They just have to stop the tank. And stopping a tank isn't that hard. If you can throw a track or just disable one of the tracks, it's possible that the tank has to stop. That's not the hardest thing to do in the world. You know, a, a, a enemy hiding by the side of the road, one person with a not even that big of an explosive charge could pull that off. And they could probably escape. Because remember, in a tank, you can't see everything. It's hard to see all around you. It's one of the constant... Um, you know, thoughts on any tank commander, any tank crew's mind is how can we not only protect our tank, but all the tanks around us. And you'll see tanks behind will sometimes fire right up against tanks, their machine guns up against tanks in front of them or behind them, because that tank that's being attacked can't depress their guns down enough to actually hit the enemy threat. So these pesky individual soldiers running around on the ground are a problem for tanks because if they do throw a track, Maybe it's a couple grenades or a satchel charge or a homemade explosive that they shove up against the side of the tank and run away. They blow it. If they blow a track, we're not in the business of leaving a tank behind. So now you have a disabled tank in the middle of an advance. That disabled tank all of a sudden becomes a very nice target for anybody around. How long does it take to replace that track? Well, it's not fast, especially not fast when there's enemy fire landing all around. So just throwing a track, all of a sudden you've got a vehicle stopped. Now the rest of the column has to stop. So this incredibly deadly, fast, mobile strike force just came to a complete halt on a road on the way to Baghdad. And they're vulnerable from every direction, from mortars, from from enemy elements maneuvering on their position. So you can't let enemy dismounts anywhere near the vehicles. Because they they and one individual person can cause a major problem in the operation could cause a lot of death and destruction just by throwing a little hiccup. That's all it takes. So as Staff Sergeant Stevon Booker, Red 3, and his team are moving north to the Baghdad International or the, the Saddam Airport, again, now the Baghdad International Airport, they start to come under pretty substantial small arms and RPG fire. They're not stopping. 
They're continuing the movement. Again, this is one of the benefits of the Abrams tank and of the U.S. Armor, U.S. Army armored units is they can just go. They can take a beating, they can fire back, and they can push right through a lot of this resistance while dealing out some pretty substantial death and destruction. But those dismounts have to be dealt with. So Booker pops his hatch, which exposes himself to enemy fire, and mans a machine gun that's positioned there for the tank commander to, to stand up out of the hatch and begin engaging targets that are at pretty close range. In short order, that machine gun malfunctions. He moves over to the other one that the, the loader also has the ability to step out of the hatch and man a machine gun. That machine gun also malfunctions. So bam, these machine guns designed to help with that issue, dealing with dismounts at close range, are both jammed, destroyed, malfunctioned. They're not working. This is the point when most tank commanders could close the hatch, get back down in, and radio all around and say, hey, our machine guns are out. We're going to need a little bit of help. If you wouldn't mind, just you know, maybe keep an eye to our sides and make sure that nobody's coming up alongside our tanks. That's not crazy. It's especially not crazy because they're RPGs and machine gun, not machine gun, small arms, I'll say, um, machine gun and small arms and RPGs landing all around. That's not the course that Booker takes. Booker instead climbs out of the hatch, maintains communication with his crew, picks up his M4 rifle, and starts engaging targets with his personal weapon as they near his tank and the other tanks in his column. Again, remember, the tank is moving. It hasn't stopped. The enemy dismounts are moving all over. Tanks are easy targets, and I know an AK-47 is not going to do anything to a tank, but it's just so tempting to shoot at that because you... I don't know. It happens. So there's enemy fighters all over the place shooting at these big, rolling, deadly looking things down the street. And on top of one of them, laying down, is Staff Sergeant Stevon Booker. He's engaging targets as they near his tank, but he's also able to move around to protect the tanks to his front and back. He stays in that position directing his crew, and at one point helping to identify and call out targets so they can destroy an enemy armored personnel carrier that had over 20 Iraqi fighters inside, Iraqi Republican Guard fighters. He stays on top of the tank, continuing to engage targets for five miles. Remember, this entire movement isn't but you know maybe 17, 18, 20 miles. For five miles, he stays on top of the tank with bullets landing all around, hitting all around, RPGs flying nearby, watching enemy fighters all around trying to disable the tank and certainly kill that crazy American laying on top, shooting back. Eventually, at about the five-mile mark, Staff Sergeant Devon Booker would be hit and killed by enemy fire at the age of 34. His tank and his column would continue their advance, complete the Thunder Run into the Baghdad International Airport. And because of his actions of being able to keep the dismounted soldiers away from the tanks, he prevented those hiccups that we talked about. He prevented the, the issue of one tank being disabled and stopping the entire Thunder Run. The entire Thunder Run to Baghdad could have been stopped. Wouldn't have been a story. It would have been, we tried, but it didn't work. If Booker hadn't laid on top of his tank, and protected those vehicles at close range as they continued their movement. For his actions that day, Booker was awarded the Silver Star posthumously. And this was in 2003. In 2019, 
that award was upgraded to the Distinguished Service Cross, the second highest award for valor in the United States Army. When that happens, I, I tend to always have a positive view of that. And we could look at it any number of ways that he was not awarded what he should have been um, at the time. It's, I, I, it always feels a little easier to stomach maybe when it's a modern conflict. His family was awarded the Silver Star on his behalf. His family was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. Um, you know, that's different than somebody who was awarded something for World War II and then they pass and their children pass. And, you know, it maybe it's a little bit different impact. But for what it's worth, I always have just a, it kind of, it's a positive spin is how I always look at this. Because it's nice that we have the ability as a military, as a country, to be able to go back and say, hey, that was bigger than we thought at the time. That meant more than we thought it did at the time. And, and in retrospect, after talking to some other people and hearing what his soldiers had to say and what other units had to say, you know, let's take another look at that. It took 16 years to get to that point, but, but incredibly well-deserved and an awesome history for the Booker family to know that they've got such a hero, um, hero within their family. So nonetheless, Staff Sergeant Stevon Booker, serving with Alpha 164 Armor, part of the 3rd Infantry Division, during the 2003 invasion of Iraq, lays on top of his tank to destroy enemy dismounted targets as they approach his vehicle and others, and killed while doing so, awarded posthumously the Distinguished Service Cross. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.